0: everyone Jillian Ryford here so i am so excited about my guest today um we are going to be speaking to dr augustine fu and he's someone who i have been following and reading extensively for many years on twitter and linkedin um and i recently had the opportunity to engage with him on a deeper level and get involved with one or two of his projects and I just felt it would be really good to get him to share his knowledge um, and findings in the area of fraud detection in, in digital advertising and um, by way of a background before we get to the interview he is in an industry recognized thought leader in digital strategy and integrated marketing and an independent cybersecurity and ad fraud expert who aims to help marketers and agencies, media agencies, to audit their digital ad campaigns uh, for fraud and then to optimize them based on accurate analytics. So he's developed a tool called Foo Analytics and it is an analytics tool, it's not a punitive tool, it's a way to, to do things better, to buy better, and, and he'll explain he'll explain what that means and, and why it's so important. But his background was that he um, actually completed his PhD at MIT in material science and engineering at 23, and has then gone through the entire arc of digital marketing, both on the client side for American Express, on the agency side as Group Chief Digital Officer of Omnicom's Healthcare Consultancy Group, and Senior Vice President of Digital Strategy Lead at McCann World Group, MRM Worldwide. He started his career at McKinsey, and he is an adjunct professor and um, lecturer on digital strategy at NYU's School of Continuing and professional studies and Rutgers University Center for Management Development. So he comes with a wealth of experience. And he, I think one of the things I really like is that he built this analytics tool for himself, essentially, because he couldn't make sense of what he was seeing. And... Um, it was only in 2020 that he thought hey you know maybe I should actually let people use this and um, he's now developed it out and it's got a very flashy whizzy fabulous dashboard that do love a dashboard um, but it's an incredibly um, insightful tool and um, I think that you're going to find the interview quite interesting so let's cross over to that now. Good morning, Dr. Fu, and welcome. Thank you for uh, spending time with us today.
1: Glad um, to be here. Thank you, Jillian.
0: Pleasure. I, I, you've certainly traversed a lot of ground in the digital world, and I, I read that you wrote, "I'm a marketer of 25 years. I've witnessed the entire arc of the evolution of digital marketing," which is quite something to, to be able to claim. Can you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Um, you know, back in 95, 96 timeframe, you know, that was literally when the internet uh, spilled out of academia and military uh, into the public sector. And I remember the, the days, uh, I was still in, at McKinsey at the time, uh, we set up a multimedia lab, and there were two Apple computers, two IBM PCs, and two Sun workstations. And back then, web pages were simply text with a few words that were underlined, and you could click those to get to the next page, right, hyperlinks. So, you know, it was so early on, they, you know, most websites didn't even have pictures on them. So I remember the day when we still had to convince advertisers they needed a website, right? You know, so yeah. fast forward 25 years, almost 30 years now, um, you know, so much has changed. So much has been automated and enabled by the internet and digital marketing, which we used to call online <laughs> marketing. So uh, that's what I mean by I've kind of witnessed the entire arc of the evolution, and we've come a long way. And uh, you know, some things have stayed the same, but obviously, uh, a lot of lot of things have changed as well.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to give away my age, but I also remember the, um, you know, the size of the computers and the things in those days. It was all. I, th- <laughs> that's right. I think the kids of today would just find us a little bit kind of dinosauric, but. Um, so you then got into, you became intrigued with this idea of uh, digital ad fraud, for want of a better word, but what, what made you start researching that area?
1: I think fraud has been part of any industry, uh, as you realize, right? And uh, it's no different for digital advertising so mm-hmm. in the in the early days, when we placed ads on websites, right, that was very similar to the way you would place ads in magazines, right? Mm-hmm. Websites simply uh, took that into the digital age. But uh, from the very start, we saw bad guys set up fake websites and run ads on them, right? And they would use different means to repeatedly load the web pages uh, to cause the traffic and cause the ad impressions. And it's really only gotten worse because the tools available to fraudsters have gotten more widespread and more uh, widely available. So for mm. example, WordPress, uh, you know that's a blogging platform. Mm. Not only has it made it easy for people to put content online, it's also made it easy for fraudsters to make 10,000 copies of websites, right? So they just use a WordPress template. They populate it with some content or maybe no content at all. But it just helps them scale the fraud. So we've really seen an acceleration of the fraud in the last ten years. Right? Fraud has been a part of every industry since the beginning, and you know it's just like digital. But when we started buying ads programmatically about ten years ago, so that became the dominant form of media buying mm-hmm. instead of direct uh, buying from the publisher. Um, the advertisers lost sight of the people they were buying from, right? They were no longer negotiating with the websites, the publishers. They were simply placing a chunk of dollars with an ad exchange. And mm-hmm. so those ads would go to hundreds of thousands of websites. And there were simply too, too many of them for anyone to take the time to check all of them. And that's where the, the loophole came into the system. So I've focused on the problem of fraud for the last 10 years, um, because it's really Uh, proliferated a lot more and it's been automated by technology so I've also built a set of tools for myself uh to get better data so we can actually audit campaigns and look at those
0: so so what sort of I mean you talk about um you know uh Copies of websites and you know, populating them with 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 ads that are not kind of going to be seen by any humans. But what the, what other examples are there of ad fraud? What other kind of things are they doing?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with the most common uh, form of fraud and and what most people understand ad fraud to be. It's basically bot traffic. Okay, so if you imagine these long tail websites, right, websites that humans have not heard of the question is where do they get all the traffic, right? They need traffic in order to generate the ad impressions because typically, you know, when a human visits a web page, there's a couple of ad slots on the page and then when they load the page, the ads load, right? So that causes the ad impressions to load. So what happens with these fake websites which have uh, no human visitors? They basically use bot traffic, okay? So they Mm -hmm. go out and buy bot traffic uh, and they'll say, I need 10 million page views. And then whoever is managing the botnet will say, okay, this domain or these pages hit those pages this many times, 10 million times. So -hmm. when the bots, uh, which are basically software programs, they're kind of like what we call headless versions of browsers. Uh, They're remotely controlled or automated. The browsers are designed to load the pages repeatedly and therefore generate the ad impressions fraudulently. So that's the most common and most widely understood form of fraud. It's just bot traffic hitting uh, web pages, right? And obviously that's not humans hitting the web pages. But yeah. in addition to that, uh, the bad guys are very good at kind of multiplying their own revenue. So why stop at four ads on the page when you can stick 50 ads on the page or 100 mm. ads on the page, right? So, um, you know, overload of ads on the page. The other way they can do that would be stacking 100 ads on top of each other in the same ad slot, right? So the first one might be visible, but the other 99 are not, because it's behind the top one, right? So ad stacking would be another one. Uh, Pixel stuffing is another term where they're sticking uh, sticking the ads in one by one pixel window sizes or iframes, or maybe even zero by zero. So those are clearly invisible, and no one even has the opportunity to see them. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you have things like refreshing the page every five seconds, every two mm-hmm. seconds, every one second, or refreshing the ad slot, right? So the bad guys have multiple techniques uh, to use to multiply their revenue. And if the fraud detection company's technology is tuned for looking for bot traffic coming to the webpage, and they may not be looking for all these other forms of fraud, they'll clearly be reporting all these, all, you know, the rate of fraud. Right. So if they're just looking for bots and they're just reporting on IVT, invalid traffic, um, mm-hmm. you know, it might be misleading to the to the advertisers because it's uh, it's less than the total uh, you know, forms of fraud that are
0: involved. It's only one form of it. So then the first the first example you gave, is that what they call MFA sites, the made for advertising sites?
1: Yeah. So so, you know, it's kind of a misnomer, that acronym, uh, but it's become popularized recently. but. You know, most ad-supported websites are made for advertising. That's how they make their money. So it's kind of a strange term to use. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the way I define MFA websites are the ones that cheat are the publishers or these websites that attempt to load 3,000 ads on the page or maybe 1,000 ads on a page. So what's the threshold, right? Is it fair to load three ads on the page or five or 15? I've seen some Mm -hmm. mainstream publishers load 15 ads on the page. Right, some of them are below the fold. Obviously, you have to keep scrolling down, and now with something called infinite scroll, they just keep repeating the ads. Right, you know, as you scroll, they're going to keep loading more ads into the page because it's infinitely long. Right, so there's many variations on this, and to me, I really like to define MFA sites as just outright cheaters. Right, not only are they trying to load way, way too many ads on the page, but they're also covering up the cheating. Okay. So in those mm-hmm. cases, what we've seen are if you visit the page manually, you won't see the fraud happening. But if there's a special code in the URL that actually triggers the cascade of uh, ad impressions. So it's a way for them to hide the fraud. So it's not so obvious to manual inspection. And hmm. most of this you can't actually see in the view source, right? So a lot of people say, oh, I can just check the you know, HTML on the page. Hmm. Because programmatic ads are loaded in by JavaScript, you won't actually see it in the HTML of the page, right? You won't see it in view source. So all of these things are, that's why I called it a cascade of uh, JavaScript calls that then just call in more and more and more ads onto the page. So to me, when I see that, we know that the site is deliberately cheating and they're also deliberately trying to cover up the cheating. So in that case, when I see that, I say, that's a bad guy, right? So we're gonna turn off that site. And keep in mind, MFA sites only refers to websites. Right now, the vast majority of impressions run through mobile apps. And that has nothing to do with MFA. So if we focus too much on MFA, uh, like everyone is kind of distracted by MFA sites right now, we're missing out on uh, all the fraud that's happening in mobile apps. And there's even more fraud in mobile apps because it's even less measurable than web pages.
0: Yeah. So, So how long have you been tracking this sort of behavior?
1: It's uh, almost a decade and a couple of years, so 11, 12 years. I, I left Omnicom in 2012 and started building uh, my own tools because at the time, we saw strange things in the data, like 200% click-through rates. So that means there's more clicks than there are ad impressions. And long story short, it turns out that the botnets can continue to click on those uh, click-through URLs even when the campaign was turned off. That's why yeah. we had more clicks than ad impressions. And back then, no one could tell me why that was happening or how that could be possible. And long story short, it's bot activity, right? The bots just copy off the click through URL and just repeatedly hit it. So not only are the bots causing the ad impressions, they're also clicking on the ads. Because mm-hmm. for most advertisers, they use click through rate as an indicator of performance. So they mm-hmm. say, oh, we're getting so many more clicks. It must be working really, really well, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of fits their worldview. They really want these campaigns to work well. So they use a convenient to measure a parameter like clicks. And unfortunately, that's kind of misled uh, advertisers for the last decade. And I call the last decade a lost decade of digital advertising yeah. because, um, you know, we've been just buying way, way too many ads. We're getting way too many clicks than, are, than is realistic because like, humans don't click on ads that much. But bots love to click on your ads. And hmm. So when we have algorithms that optimize for this easy to detect signal called clicks, then the algorithms will accidentally send more money to the bad guys because the hmm. fake sites always have higher clicks than real yeah. sites.
0: Yeah. Right. And and is that what you call I've I've seen you call them, calling them vanity metrics?
1: Yeah, um vanity metrics is like oh we got bigger numbers, right? It's kind of like playing a video game, right? Higher scores mean you win, right? So, yeah. uh vanity metrics are the ones that um, a lot of marketers love to report up the chain. You know, they tell their bosses, "Look, we got so many more ads. We got so many more clicks. Mm-hmm. And we even got a better uh, discount on on the ad impressions." And you can kind of understand how that's uh, very addicting to the to the marketers, right? You got a better deal, you got you know, hundred billion impressions and you got it for way, way cheaper than you used to be able to buy mm. the ads. Mm. And so that's very tempting. That's very addicting. Uh, but what they don't realize is that real publishers can't afford to sell the ads for 30 cents CPMs or maybe even $3 right. CPMs because yeah. they actually have to pay their journalists and editors mm. to create the mm. content. Whereas mm-hmm. the fake sites and the fraudsters, when they set up, you know, a thousand copies of a WordPress website, they probably plagiarize all the content. So they don't have any costs of content. So even if they sell ads for 30 cent CPMs, they're still profitable. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's a very unfair fight where the fraudsters have all the advantage compared to the publishers. And until the advertisers wake up and realize that these absurdly low CPMs are just not realistic, um, they have to turn that around. They have to know that we need to pay higher CPMs to be able to get our ads on real publisher sites and don't worry because you're gonna buy far less quantity. So even if yeah. the prices, right, the CPM prices are far higher, you don't need to buy as many ad impressions to have a marketing effect. So that way your costs may still be lower than what you're spending right now.
0: And, and hopefully you're actually being read by humans, um, you know, if yes, that's if the most actual thing. sales. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So from what you've seen, I mean, how widespread is this kind of stuff?
1: Um, I'll kind of give a non answer here, which is (laughs) it's more widespread than most people think it is. And the reason for that is over the last 10 years or so, and and primarily in the last six or seven, um, a trade association here in the US called Association of National Advertisers, which represents all the big advertisers, have put out press releases uh, for each of the last six years saying Mm -hmm. that fraud is 1%. Don't worry about it. So if you were an advertiser, and your trade group said fraud is 1%, what would you do, right? You think, oh, everything's fine. I don't need to do anything, right? So Mm -hmm. because of that, um, it's actually allowed the fraud to proliferate. And clearly it's not 1%. Most people realize, even their gut feeling tells them it's got to be greater than 1%. And you can already see some of these things in your own Google Analytics, right? So when you Mm -hmm. get clicks from programmatic channels, you'll say, well, why is it like 100% bounce rate or 99 to 100% bounce rate? Or why are the visitors staying on my page for only one second or half a second, right? So there's already indicators to say, okay, that's not of good quality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yet they couldn't put their finger on it because the legacy fraud verification vendors um, that they had in place kept telling them everything was fine, don't worry about it. And usually it's one number in a spreadsheet at the end of the month, right? So without additional details, they couldn't do anything else. They had to trust uh, whatever number was given to them by those uh, fraud vendors. But I think right now, most advertisers realize that budgets are going to get tighter. They have to be more careful with their spending. And now is the time to audit uh, some of their campaigns and take a closer look, because even they know know fraud is greater than 1%. So when we yeah. sometimes when we go in there and audit the campaigns, we can actually show that there's all these other things that you may not have been looking for uh, in the past.
0: And so that uh, one oh yeah, percent, I mean, what are they doing? What are they measuring? What are they not measuring that they're not seeing all of the other activity?
1: Yeah. So remember earlier we were talking about other forms of fraud like pixel stuffing, ad yes, stacking, yeah. whatever.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and and also think about the um, fraud that's happening in mobile apps. So for yeah. example, an alarm clock app would be loading ads continuously, 24-7. How often does a human use an alarm clock app? Right? Maybe for one minute uh, when, before they go to bed and set the alarm. Yeah. and then Maybe for one minute uh, when they wake up and turn off the alarm. And even then, you know, how many ad impressions can you actually load in those time periods? Right? So the alarm clock apps are cheating. Uh, by continuously loading ad impressions in the background, whether the app is being used or whether the mobile device is being used, so technically, none of that is a bot hitting a web page. Okay, so if those fraud vendors' right. technology are tuned for looking for bots they 're not going to see any of this stuff, right nor mm-hmm. are they going to see pixel stuffing, ad stacking, pop unders, force redirects, all these other forms of fraud that 's one reason why they 're severely under reporting the fraud. Another reason is over the years, the bot makers are very, very good at evading detection. So whenever they see one of these fraud vendors' detection tags, they simply block it. So then Mm -hmm. they can't collect any data and measure it and detect it as as a bot. So that's a big problem. Um, So if you think about um, ad blocking, right? Humans block ads, that's somewhere between 20 and 30% of humans have ad blockers active. Mm -hmm. So just like humans block ads, the bots block the detection trackers. And yeah. they're very, very good at that. So that means that legacy fraud vendors don't have any data. And if they don't right. have any data, they can't detect the bot. And that's why the number is so low.
0: And and what about the app stores and the, you know, I mean, should they be doing more about these apps? What kind of, what kind of uh, guardrails do they have in place? <laughs> you
1: can almost say there's none. Uh, but yeah. yes, they do have some guardrails. But here, here's the thing. Uh, Google Play Store did not actually start scanning the code of the apps until 2015. You know, you would think that is such an obvious thing that they should actually scan the code for malware before they let the app in the App Store. They didn't even start doing that until 2015. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, right now, um, you know, to this day, I can show you countless apps that we see running ads uh, in campaigns that are already mm-hmm. in the Play Store that are outright uh, committing fraud. Mm-hmm. Now, here, here's the reason why most of those are not caught. It's, uh, it's, there's a negative incentive built in. Google makes ad revenue when those apps make ad revenue, right? They, they share in the ad revenue. So Google's not in a hurry to kick them out, right? And if nobody else detects them, why would they you know, it's deliberately reduce their own revenue? So here's an example. Uh, It was like 2018 or so. Craig Silverman, a reporter, investigative reporter from BuzzFeed News, uh, found 600 Chinese mobile apps that were just Mm -hmm. committing outright fraud, just continuously loading ads in the background. When he reported the 600 apps to Google, Google did kick them out of the Play Store. The Mm -hmm. question is, why did they get in there in the first place? And second of all, why did they take an outsider, an investigative journalist who wasn't even a tech person uh, in our industry? to detect and show Google the evidence to the point where it's so uh, irrefutable that Google had to kick them out, right? So when you talk about the 10 million apps that are in the Play Store, kicking out 600 is not going to make a dent in the fraud, right? When everyone else is just you know continuously committing the fraud. So hopefully that gives you a sense of kind of the ratio of what is fraud and what is not. And I, mm-hmm. I have a simple exercise I usually run in class. I ask my students, um, name off the 10 apps that you use every day, name off Mm -hmm. 10 mobile apps you use every day. Most of them can't even get to 10, right? They name off the first five quickly, then six and seven, they may get to eight. They can't even name 10 mobile apps they use every single day. And I do the same thing with websites, name 10 websites you use every day. They can't even get to 10 because most people stick with a finite number of sites uh, that they know about and they use, right? So when we talk about the long tail, and there's now tens of millions of sites and millions of mobile apps. All of those are ad-supported, right? They run ads. Mm. So most of those, like if humans don't know about them, they're certainly not going to be visiting the websites or using those mobile apps. So who the heck is using those apps and visiting those websites? That's where, you know, the fraud has really kind of filled in uh, the gaps. And because there was so much money, budgets pouring into digital, you know, the bad guys could literally fabricate as many billions of ad impressions as necessary to absorb all that budget.
0: Mm. I remember one of your charts and uh, it showed that there literally aren't enough humans on the planet.
1: Absolutely, right? If you think yeah. about it, you just look <laughs> at some of the numbers, right? There's seven yeah. billions of humans on earth. How many of them actually have an internet connection or a smartphone, you know, so on and so forth. There, there are parts of the world where they're, they have trouble putting food on the table, right? Uh, so and are getting fresh water they're certainly not online surfing the web eight hours a day to generate all those ad impressions right? yeah. so when all you between start between midnight,
0: mid- midnight and 4 a.m is a lot of these things are
1: exactly right humans are asleep <laughs> but bots are out to play
0: so you built your um your food analytics. You you built it for yourself for your own kind of research, and and now you allowing other people to use it. So what does it do differently? I mean, how does it generate better results? I mean, I know it's it's looking at different things than the other verification agencies, but what do you think it um it, it does differently?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I first started uh, doing this about 11 years ago, uh, I needed better tools because no one else could really explain to me what we were seeing in, in the analytics. So, when I first started out, I didn't set out to build a platform for others to use. So, it was really a set of tools that I used to audit campaigns so I could see better and uh, more details. Um, it wasn't until 2020 that I decided to open up the platform. So okay. up till then, I had been delivering the consulting or recommendations via PowerPoint, kind of like when I was at McKinsey. But mm-hmm. uh, I ran out of time. And so I said, I got to open up the platform so others can actually use it. And it's very similar to Google Analytics, but GA is mainly for websites, right? It's not really for ads. So mm-hmm. Foo Analytics is analytics for your digital ads. So you would put the tag in the ads and you can actually see where the ads went and whether uh, the ads were loaded by fraudulent means, whether it's bots or pixel stuffing or forced redirects or whatever. So the first layer is we look for many, many forms of fraud because I've been studying this. And as I encounter new forms of fraud, if I see it often enough, we then codify it in the algorithms so that the platform continues to look for those things. And so now when you log into the dashboard, you'll see many forms of fraud in addition to high bot traffic. Right. Um, the other thing is I'm the one who's going to continue tuning the algorithm because um, you know, I have, I work on client campaigns and we see different scenarios all, all the time. Right. So whether it's in different markets like North America versus South Africa versus EU, Uh, There are different forms of fraud, uh, and different forms of fraud are prevalent in different markets, right? So when we see those, uh, again, when I uh, see it often enough, we can then codify it in the algorithms. So I'm the one continuing to uh, tune the algorithms. And even though I do think that the other legacy fraud verification vendors have engineers who are trying to update the algorithms, If they don't have enough cases where they're actually looking at data with clients, they may be missing something. So let me give you two examples uh, that we've seen publicly. In 2017, uh, one of the fraud vendors said, oh, we discovered this huge sports bot. Basically, they were seeing billions upon billions of bid requests coming from sports sites like nfl.com, MLB, uh, dallascowboys.com. These are all North American. Uh, So the data scientist, correctly picked that out as fraudulent. Yes, it was fraud. Billions and billions of bid requests. But they misinterpreted uh, what they saw by saying, oh, there must be a huge botnet on all of these websites. And I was measuring on some of these websites, and I said, there's no botnet on these sites. So what these data scientists didn't realize is that it doesn't require a bot to hit the NFL web pages or the MLB web pages to generate those bid requests. They were simply generating it using Python scripts. Okay, so that's an example where the data scientists found the fraud, but they didn't understand how the tech worked. So they they put out a press release that had incorrect information in it. The second example was more recent. It was 2020. It was a different fraud detection company. They discovered something called the 404 bot. And that name came from the fact that there were many web pages that when they Mm -hmm. visited the page, it was page not found. That's a 404 Mm -hmm. error in server speak. So in those cases, you know, they would see, oh, here's all these pages on New York Times, MarthaStewart.com, FoodNetwork.com, whatever. None of those pages existed because they were all made up. Those URLs were completely fabricated by the bad guys. So in that case, again, they misinterpreted the data because they didn't understand how the tech worked. So my job as a research scientist is to not only understand how the tech worked, but also start building in some of these detections into the algorithm. Uh, so I'm continuing to evolve the platform uh, and and that's what the advertiser or the customers will benefit from. It's really about looking for more forms of fraud than just bot traffic hitting a page.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the scale of it just flabbergasts me because, you know, I work a lot with marketers and with agencies and there's this constant pressure from marketers to save money and procurement and make things more efficient and more, make things more effective. And um, I read that article that the ANA put out can this year where they were saying that those MFA websites were representing 21% of impressions and 15% of spend. And it just amazes me why are marketers not jumping up and down about this?
1: You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame one term that agencies keep using. It's cost mm-hmm. efficiency. Okay. That is a misnomer because CPMs are prices, not costs. So let me play out a very simple scenario. Ten years ago, when advertisers were buying ads direct from real publishers, they were paying $30 CPMs, just using round numbers. Okay? They're paying $30 CPMs. Today, they're paying $3 CPMs. Okay, those are prices, but they're buying 10 times the quantity. So they're Mm. still spending $30. Okay, so CPM prices, right? $3 is a CPM price, cost per thousand. It's not Mm. a cost. So right now, because they're buying $3 inventory, uh, but they're buying 10 times the quantity, they're not saving any money. They're still spending the $30. It's just that now they're buying from crappier sources, right? They're buying through exchanges. So it's mm-hmm. almost like go back to paying $30 CPMs, but mm-hmm. buy 90% less quantity, that will mm-hmm. still be better, then you will actually save cost. But I think the term cost efficiency has been bantered around, you know, in all the agency pitches. And unless you really stop for a moment and say, that's not a cost, it's, it's not more cost efficient for me to buy lower CPM crap. And I think right now, one of the things I'm trying to educate the marketers on is think about what I'm going to call a HCPM, a human CPM, because Mm -hmm. if there's only a small portion of humans in that media that you're buying, um, you're going to have a multiplier, right? So let me just use a a simple ratio. If only 10% of those impressions were shown to humans, you need to buy 10 times more to get the equivalent of buying from a real publisher, right? So whatever CPM you're paying, multiply that by 10, right? And that's being generous, that there's 10% of humans in the in the programmatic buys. When you think about the MFA sites and their ability to try to load 3000 ads per page, a normal publisher won't do that. They're gonna load five ads on the page, right? Mm-hmm. So, There's no comparison, right? The ratio of ads sold by cheaters and fraudsters is going to be so much larger than what can be sold by real publishers that the ratio is way greater than 99% fraud, right? I'm just using round numbers so we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think right now it's really for the advertisers to realize, you know, procurement is not helping when they're forcing their agencies to buy $3 CBMs or try to get a further discount on that $3. Because Mm -hmm. when all is said and done, that forces the agency to buy bad stuff because that's the only kind of inventory that can be priced that low.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, bizarrely, I remember having Procter and Gamble as a client years ago, and their media buying philosophy was lowest CPM, and it landed up the, it landed up them buying TV spaces in completely inappropriate slots and whatever. But yeah. I think the the theory with digital was it was all always highly measurable, and we could see where it was going, and you know, happy <laughs> days and and clearly not. So, what is the agency's world's position on this?
1: Uh, they hate it. The, the reason for that is, um, and I'm going to be uh, accusing the agencies here. I'm not accusing the people who work at the agency. I'm going to indict the agency revenue model. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not solely to blame uh, because, like we said, procurement departments have forced them to buy cheaper and cheaper CPMs. And in essence, they forced them to buy crap. Yeah. But in most cases, because the agency margins have been forced basically to zero or negative, they have been forced to find other ways to make money and make margin. And so you've heard of the term principal trading, right? So there was a study conducted in 2016 by the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers. Uh, they basically found that the agencies were giving kickbacks to themselves. Okay? So they were buying media and essentially marking it up. They were giving kickbacks to themselves, using foreign subsidiaries to hide in all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of kind of shady stuff going on with the way they were doing the billings the way they were getting kickbacks and whatever but the idea of principal trading is that uh the agencies were not acting as agents as they were supposed to be right so they were taking ownership of media ahead of time and then marketing it up and selling it to their clients without telling them that they were doing so okay so that's principal trading and that's not what an agency is supposed to be doing um but in any, any case, uh, when they do that, here, here's a scenario where it actually necessitates fraud. Okay? They purchased 100 billion impressions ahead of time. They took ownership of that. They risked their own dollars. What if the 100 billion impressions don't materialize? Because not enough people showed up on the websites. Because right? the ad impressions don't exist uh, ahead of the moment someone visits a web page. So they've already pre-committed to buying 100 billion impressions. If they if they're running behind and they can't make their number, what do they do? They panic and they say, Oh shit, we gotta make our number. So then it basically creates a scenario where they're desperately going out and looking for bot traffic to buy, right? They have to buy traffic. Now they're not consciously trying to buy bot traffic, but basically yeah. you can have a simple think about it. There's not a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do but to go to your website, you know, a hundred million times to generate those page views when you want them to right so all of that is bot traffic right so on my linkedin profile i have something called bot traffic equals bot traffic b-o-u-g-h-t right when you buy the traffic it's bot traffic because again there's not a whole bunch of humans who will go swarm your website and you know get you all those page views that you need right so all of this has been built up over the years and conveniently, the legacy fraud verification vendors have reported low fraud. So everyone said, oh, well, it seems to be low fraud. And that's why we kept buying more and more and more of it. And I think that's also why uh, the good publishers were harmed because if mm-hmm. the legacy fraud verification company said, oh, a, a legitimate publisher is 1% IVT and these outright fake sites over here are 1% IVT, you can understand you know, from the marketer's perspective, right, when they're buying ads, Oh, both of these are one percent fraud. They're both of the same quality, so why not buy the cheaper thing, right? So in essence, because these legacy fraud verification companies failed to detect the fraud, they put the fraudulent websites on the same footing as premium publishers,
0: and yeah. so that's
1: why and the cheaper, advertisers so what a win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I mean by the lost decade. But mm-hmm. I do see light at the end of the tunnel. I am hopeful now that things are turning around and that the advertisers are starting to realize that when I'm paying $1 CPMs, it's going to be crappy stuff. It can't possibly be legitimate publisher inventory.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, what I, from what I've seen of your your tool and the way that you report the results and the the, the, the concerns you flag and that sort of thing, is it feels to me, it's not a punitive thing. Nobody's trying to get anyone into trouble necessarily, you know, but, but it's to say buy better, buy more effectively, yeah. Um, actually, actually reach humans. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, and so and that's
1: to... why, yeah. yeah, that's why I call it analytics, right? Not fraud detection, yeah. because exactly. really yeah. we're trying to give the ad buyer more details so that they yeah. can make a business decision. Right. So, yeah. Um, we don't just go in there and say, oh, if if this site is past a certain threshold of fraud, we block it, right? That's actually caused a lot of problems uh, in the past because when the legacy fraud vendors do that. So in this case, we're analytics. So we present the detailed data so that the ad buyer, the advertiser or their agency can make a more conscious decision. So I I talk about a process of progressively cleaning, right? We can't lop off 90% of the fraud overnight. That's just too scary for people. So I think right now if you think of it as every week we go in and clean out more and more bad guys then you're yeah. going to progressively make your campaign better and that's really the philosophy or the approach that we take.
0: And and the ideal would be for the marketing and the agency team to be working together on the dashboard or who who actually sits with the with the analytics is it the media you know it's it's going it. to depend Fine. on the
1: situation. Yeah. So a pharmaceutical client of mine uh, had me do that because they just didn't have the FTEs, the full-time employees to do that themselves. So they they asked me to do that. In some mm-hmm. other cases, the agency um, is being a good citizen and, and they're the ones looking, in, looking at the analytics. But I, I do think that uh, marketers should spend more time with the analytics and not just trust uh, whatever the reports are, right? Because I think um, if the marketer is too laid back and they're kind of sitting back and playing a video game, uh, they're not doing really good digital marketing. They really need to kind of you know roll up their sleeves a little bit and look at the data a little bit more. I think the better they understand it and the more they look at the analytics, the better they can manage their campaigns. So I really would encourage that kind of collaboration with their agency. And I also think that both the agency and the marketer have been underserved by the legacy fraud verification vendors right if they Mm. kept getting reports at the end of the month that it was one percent you can understand why they didn't do anything right but Mm. now with a better tool with better analytics with more details both the agency and the advertiser should be doing better right but if they look at the data if they look at the analytics they can actually make their campaigns better than they were in the last 10 years
0: yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me that just with the massive increase in spend that people like the big auditing companies haven't started getting their teeth into things like this.
1: They are, and I'll put this out there. The agency should be ready for big consulting firms to take their lunch money because the, a lot of advertisers that I've seen are dissatisfied with the level of um, service that the media agencies have given given to them. So mm-hmm. the uh, consulting firms and the auditors are now moving into the space by saying, oh, we can give you better insights, we can give you better strategy, and we have better tools like Foo Analytics to not only audit your campaigns, but help you actively manage it going forward. Mm-hmm. So we will see further encroachment by the consulting firms into a space that has historically been owned by the media agencies. So if the Mm. media agencies don't come along or they prefer to keep sticking with these legacy fraud vendor tools, they're going to get left behind.
0: Mm. And wasn't one of the things with programmatic that a lot of marketers were taking it in house?
1: Yes. So that's been a scary process for a lot of them, but I do think that they should take pieces of it in house. Mm -hmm. So for example, the whole point of programmatic media buying is that we don't need a lot of humans to do that, right? We're trying to use algorithms to help automate some of that. So I think, you know, there is a setup process, right? There's a little bit of more heavy lifting at the beginning to set up the campaigns and get them started. But Mm -hmm. when the campaign is running, there shouldn't be a lot of busy work, right? There shouldn't be a lot of unnecessary work. I've seen that in the case of agencies, when the agencies are running programmatic for their clients, they need to create work in order to consume their billable hours. So what I've seen as an example, concrete example here, Integral Ad Science gives the agency one tag for every ad creative. So say, for example, you have 1,000 ad creatives. You now have to go in there and put one tag into each creative. That is completely unnecessary work because you could put one tag at the campaign level. You don't have to put it in each of 1,000 creatives. So that's an example where the agency, again, has a misaligned incentive they're trying to create work week after week so that he can consume their billable hours. That's not efficient. So, there should be some things that the client brings in house. And I think the agencies would actually do better by providing more thought leadership and strategy and media planning mm-hmm. rather than the commoditized stuff that's just busy work. You see what I'm saying? So, whatever can be automated by algorithm should be taken in house. Uh, and then the agencies can actually provide guidance to their clients. Some are, not the big holding companies, but some are actually providing the advertisers guidance in, in how they should in-house and what they should in-house. And I think that's yeah. going to be more efficient for both parties. And uh, you know, we always offer no-cost pilots because we really want to show the client, not just tell them, right? So you don't have to take our word for it. Just go in and audit a campaign. Let us do a no-cost pilot. And we can then show you uh, some observations and recommendations based on your own data. So it's not just theoretical or someone else's data, right? So that way, they get to see uh, whether there's any issues to be troubleshooted, a troubleshooted a troubleshoot, uh, in in their own campaigns.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I've been reading, I've been reading all of your blogs and 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 your LinkedIn posts for many years, and it's been really thank you. Uh, it's really interesting to kind of scratch the surface a little bit, so um, so And thank- I'm very
1: hopeful, you know, things are turning around. So I think yeah. we'll have a much better next decade of digital marketing.
0: Yeah, it feels like a spotlight is being shone on, on some of this and ne- necessarily so. So that's, that's a good thing.
1: Thank you very much, Jillian.
0: Thank you. Goodbye. Well, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Um, It's certainly an area that I think needs a lot more light shone in it i think that um you know there've been other industry experts who've spoken about a lost a lost decade in digital um, tom roach and dr grace kite and Liz bennett um have been talking about that recently and i think the uh, the intention really with all of this is to say how do we do things better how do we market Better with the resources we have? How do we use the tools that we have to actually drive growth in the business better? If you are being seen by 1.2 million bots, they're not gonna buy your baked beans or your insurance policies. So I think it's really time that collectively as an industry, we start reframing these metrics uh, we start being very intentional about our buys, whether they are programmatic or not. I think we need to get stuck in and start buying quality as opposed to quantity. It, it It's really, it, it seems it should be logical, but um, I think it's all got away from us a little bit. Um, I know there are many of you who may disagree, uh, but in my sort of quite simple mind, I go... The whole point of this is to is, is to be more effective. Uh and as he said in the interview, maybe this mad scramble on efficiency has actually done us all a great disservice. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in, in diving into this in a little bit more detail and just um becoming more educated on it, I suggest you follow Dr. Fu on LinkedIn. Uh it's under um his name. Dr. Fou, F-O-U, um, he's got a lot of blogs and he's also got pinned to his LinkedIn profile. He's got a lot of very interesting articles that explain the background, explain the analytics that he, that he uses and the, how the tool works and, and what he's been finding and why it's time that we actually explore this in more detail. Um, if you wanna organize a, a a conversation with him, he's based in New York. Um, and we can facilitate that you can either contact me on Gillian at, at therapy.co.za or you can contact the team at truth sets online they have taken a leading role in bringing dr foo's analytics into various markets they are licensed globally with an africa exclusive and are a licensed vendor of foo analytics their emails are on the screen but if you are listening to this on a podcast um, their addresses are Jonathan, J O N A T H A N, dot Pigden, P I G D E N, at Truth Sets, T R U T H S E T S, online, all one word, dot com, or Mark M A R C, dot D H A L L U I N, at Truth online, dot com. So feel free to contact me, contact Mark, contact Jonathan at any of the the addresses or on LinkedIn, and um, we can facilitate a conversation with Dr. Fu. He can take you through some of his learnings. Do go and read some of his articles. Follow him. He he posts a lot of fascinating stuff. Um and and you'll see you'll start wondering why on earth no one's been talking about this, but. There are glimmers of hope. The uh, ANA apparently has come out and said gosh maybe they were looking at the wrong things Um, and that some of the more sort of nefarious ways uh, that, that this fraud is showing up has not in fact been measured. So I think we're at a tipping point. I think that that um, we are going to look back and get back at it in time and go, what on earth were we thinking? But there has been a lost decade of digital in a lot of ways, and we are learning and we're moving forward. So make yourself aware of these things and use this type of information to go and make sure that your media buyers are as effective as possible. Um, Dr. Fu is fond of saying, you know, that we haven't had this type of tool up until now. Now we have it. There's nothing to be frightened of. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no, you know, all we've got to do is use it and make sure that your your ads are getting in front of the right people who can translate to growth. This is a very powerful tool, and um, and I really believe that. Ad agencies should take it on board, media agencies should take it on board, marketers should take it on board um, because we're all looking for efficiency and we're all looking for effectiveness. And this tool is a way of helping us get there. So uh, get in touch if you want to have a sit down with Dr. Fu. He's based in New York. Um, he is very approachable. He's very happy to talk to you. And. Um, and uh, you know we can arrange a test um, on one of your campaigns you can have a look at it it is eye opening let me tell you Um, and there's no downside because if the test runs and everything that you're doing is amazing well then fantastic but what if it's not and i can tell you that in what i've seen so far there are big rooms for improvement happy days get in touch (music) mm <music>